it goes back to your original point in your question, which is you're from the industry, you have an idea. The hope is, is that you know all these folks to go talk to and take something back to them. If you don't have that, but you have a really solid idea, my advice would be to go find probably a disgruntled, very experienced person that wants out of their role and, and sign them up as a co-founder and, and, and give, them an, give them an out. That could be really fun. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. All right, guys, I got to give another shout out to a quick sponsor of the show, Chili Piper. Did you guys know that 60% of inbound leads don't convert to a meeting? And that you can double your inbound conversions by eliminating the waiting period between the form fill and the meeting? And so with Chili Piper, you can turn those leads into meetings instantly with intelligent rules that auto-qualify and route leads in real time. Also, you never let leads fall through the crack because they have a two-way sync with your CRM, which just helps also give you clean attribution on those leads at the end of the day. So with Chili Piper, you have no more leaky funnel. Instead, you've got more leads, more meetings, and more pipeline. Start turning leads into meetings today with Chili Piper. Visit chilipiper.com slash leaders to learn more. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Really excited to welcome Ted Gutierrez to the show today. He is the co-founder and CEO of securitygate.io. Ted, welcome. I love to have the guests give an intro of themselves and their business. I know you can do it better than I can. No, very easy, man. Les, appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, I'm a Houston uh, Houston native. I'm a veteran, and uh, I'm in the Houston tech ecosystem down here. Intersection of uh, critical infrastructure sectors and cybersecurity. Needed a software that could automate some risk assessment processes, and we've been at it at securitygate.io for uh, going on four years. So you guys provide, if I understand, like sort of tracking and management software that would replace uh, and this is such a good story of you know of like many many SaaS products replace the spreadsheet for x y or z you know right and so i guess if people i'm guessing at enterprise level or maybe most businesses need to track you know sort of uh, compliance and track uh, risk mitigation and the tool allows them to do that yeah pretty much so my background came as a risk management auditor for shell and so hard hat, steel toe, running around the earth. And the tools I had at my disposal were first class tickets to, uh, which was cool. I, I got to admit, it was pretty cool traveling. I traveled like 60% of the time. and But it was a manual process centered on Excel and email, unsecured. Uh, it generally wasn't a good workflow management and there was a lot of inefficiencies. But back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, that that's kind of the way it was. And so as we see a push to digital transformation for a lot of enterprises out there, as we see cyber risk increasing and the impacts increasing, I mean, you just have to look at the news to see, you know, what the, what the challenges are. 
you know, about five years ago, we recognized that there was this imbalance in the number of assessments that people wanted to do, the demand side. And then the supply side is that it's unique. In the critical infrastructure space, you got this thing called operational technology. Um, they could be sensors. A lot of people confuse that with IoT. But you have rigs, you have chemical plants, you have major you know, mechanical and, and, and uh, process-oriented systems and a lot of these manufacturing places. Um, and they all talk to each other, right? And so very similar and, and dissimilar to an IT organization of connecting email and to people, those need to be secured as well. And so with the demand going up for the risk assessments, but the supply of qualified people that got that side of the business, that OT side, we saw that as an opportunity. And so for the last couple of years, we've been developing that, uh, that SaaS solution. And it's, and, you know, COVID really gave us a really nice tailwind because nobody can really travel now. So we see it as workflow efficiencies. It's really a workflow management solution. It's just aimed at critical infrastructure and the intersection of it with cybersecurity. Right, right. Is that, I think that's what people would start to say is the the edge computing, right? Like the sensors, the touch, everything. Yeah, I mean, think about how many things in your house are connected to the internet today. Yeah, right. And I can imagine like critical infrastructure being, you know, sort of, everybody talking about hacking the electric grid and all types of, you know, stuff like that. Now, like there's, we have sensors for everything and maybe as a society in a, in a business uh, context, we just sort of go, well, hook it all up to the internet. And I don't know that people thought too carefully about that. I think there's folks like that. Right. And there's also, there's some competing interests, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a push and a pull between digital transformation and security. There's a pull between efficiency and quality control. It, it always is there. So I think where the industry is at, where I saw it about five years ago, I think that what we're experiencing today, the experts in the industry, they knew this was was kind of going to be a, a road that we travel on. So I don't, I don't think that there's any surprise as to what's happening right now. I think that more people want to connect more things. You know, look at what's happening in the oil and gas industry, right? Going through this sick and down demand based on What's happening globally? We look at what happens to the uh, the price of oil, and so downstream from that, folks have to find a more efficient way to get oil out of the ground, or get electricity off the grid, or get power off of a windmill. And so, as they do that, one of the fastest ways is why don't we find some inefficiencies here and use technology to talk to each other? And so, there you've got a a, a big mess of um, it's a beautiful mess, but it's a mess of different belief systems, different compliance standards, different maturity programs. Everybody kind of in some of the critical infrastructure industries, they all have their own viewpoints. And then you go to somewhere like uh, the electric grid that has NERC set as a standard that you must follow. And so there's a lot of interpretation. And so right now it's a big playing field um, and there's, there's just not enough qualified people to go around. So where we kind of fill in the gaps is we help really big companies drive that efficiency that they seek because they've had a process, it's very mature. Now they just want to kind of digitally transform that process. We help them do that. And then for companies that are a little bit younger in their maturity, those guys don't even know where to start. And that's where we have a team of experts from this particular space. And so there's a DNA of, of critical infrastructure built into the platform, right? Um, and so for us, you know, we help companies big and small. We help a lot of consultants, believe it or not. Tons of consultants that use our solution to actually be the leading kind of edge in their their assessment process. So it's exciting. Um, and um, it, it's 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 a very unique world. Do you have to integrate this the SaaS with uh, like a professional service thing? We talk about having the expertise is uh, 
do you have to provide sort of humans to to do a lot of stuff with the, the clients to get them up and running and to make the best use of the platform? Yeah, so our actual onboarding time is probably the, the, the fastest in the industry, right? And we only say that because we built it like that. There's a lot of really heavy configuration heavy consultant heavy solutions that take a long time to get off the off the ground. We see those as kind of the first movers in the game. They started off in the IT side. And so their bridge to get to the critical infrastructure side has been slow. We see most of those folks working for IT groups, most of them for the, the governance group, uh, many for the privacy. They're really good tools. We, we push data to some of those more heavy monolithic solutions. For us, we wanted a super rapid onboarding. And so we designed it to be such. So there is a lot of configuration in the platform that folks can do today that they couldn't do two years ago, but most of the configuration takes um, a few hours at max. When you look at how the actual solution is, is used, there's three different types of data points you're looking for when it comes to security. You're looking for technology, you're looking for people, and you're looking for process. It's interesting because of the frameworks that guide cybersecurity for a lot of the different industry sectors, 75% of the questions, the controls, the standards, the bullet points, whatever you want to call it, they all aim at people and process. But we see a dichotomy in what the market offers. 85% of the solutions on the market are all technology. So we, we recognized that a couple of years ago. And so our solution integrates with a lot of technical tools. So you can pull in some of that data through an API integration, which has been really nice having this year and last, um, and will continue to grow. But where most of the data is ingested in security gate is an actual human who is in, inputting information about their security program. They're doing it inside of the platform. And so that's where about 90% of the data comes in. We don't, we don't typically do that. We offer some training to folks that have never really done them before. You know, we considered doing more of that ourselves, but what we found post COVID was we sign up the partner so that they can do that. And what, what we're finding is assessments are, they're used as in, in sometimes a top of funnel tool. Um, sometimes as a loss leader, just to identify where all the gaps are. Oh, we can fix X, Y, Z, one, two, three. So the partners are really enjoying that kind of uh, pull through for services and we want to empower them to do it. And then some of the other more mature uh, folks are, you know, they have teams internally that they can actually tap into. So it's, it's a there's two different models. What I'm kind of enjoying that I really didn't see coming was the user experience, the features to drive use the user experience. A lot of the different onboarding is really, and the reason is because a lot of the uh, the asset owners that have a staff, they're really a consultant for the the energy company, you know, um, and so that experience is just the same. It's just an at dot com email address is different, you know. So we're lucky in that capacity. Yeah, that actually that makes a, a huge amount of sense. And as a as folks maybe who are listening or thinking about you know addressing a need for an industry or sort of a, a point solution to and, and, in, and in fact this sort of replacing spreadsheets thing that we you know hear a lot. Um, I think that what you just said is really important because you would you would really want to. Uh, create and implement things that that help those service providers in the ecosystem. So uh, you've got the consultant, you've got your tool, and then you've got the uh, the end client there. And if you need, if you can find a spot in the market to enable that and make that transaction much better, you're you're really valuable. You're not just a toll taker, you know, sort of on the highway, but you're you're facilitating the development of somebody else's business, and it's in their best interest 
uh, to work with you. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't see that dynamic in, in every tool, but if, if you can find a spot in the market for that, it's a huge place to play. Well, it's with, I agree with your perspective and it was interesting when we started seeing the data points that led us to that realization. I'll be truthful. We're still, we're still in a, how does the world get back to business post COVID, you know, experience? I think we're you know, starting off Q3 right now. Um, we're as busy as we've ever been. I think a lot of cyber challenges are, are starting to come more and more to the top of the uh, food chain, if you will. So we've got opportunities out there to drive more data points, but I'll be the first to tell you, I had a belief system that the direct asset owners, the asset owners like the chemical company, the pharmaceutical company, the rig, I had believed as the CEO of the company for a long time, that was the primary target. What I think happened is we had worked with so many of them. We had created that validation in the market and that traction in the market, which enabled the consultants to kind of peek over and say, well, I want to be able to offer them the same thing. And so combine that with the need for, I hear it all the time, everybody wants a flashy dashboard. Everybody wants pretty colors. Well, really what they want is data analytics, right? So that's where we see us really going long-term as a data analytics platform, specifically for internal and external consultants to transition what used to be, you know, rudimentary data entry and then manual mapping of what that data really meant. That's a big task for really educated people. Well, we see the software enabling limited human capital to transition from data entry to actually wisdom generation and, and insights and change, right? And so when you take somebody who's really great at conducting assessments and you say, hey, we can save 50 hours in that 100 hour engagement, that, that's gonna free them up to be able to help make some meaningful change. And that's what everybody really wants is they want meaningful change and people are trying to figure it out. So we feel like we're really well positioned. Uh, we've got really good pace and we're getting incredible feedback from the market. That's one thing that we've, I'm really thankful for is that folks use it. They tell us what they'd like next. And, and we've got a pretty good flow of, of actual users sponsoring new features, which I think is where a lot of SaaS companies sometimes make mistakes. They build in a hole and they release it and they hope it wins. That, you know, we've been lucky that that wasn't our path. How do you actually enable that? Because, uh, you know, I know from, you know, SaaS experiences that, you know, sort of everybody asks for the feature that they want and you need to sort of facilitate that conversation. And as a product team, you really need to sort of sort that out and say, is this or is this not something that we imagine being on the roadmap because it can splinter your focus yeah, you know, it, as well. So I mean, there's not enough time to talk about the complexity of that challenge because there's a plus and a minus, right? We were a bootstrap company. So for a period of time, our product team just sat in a hole we had one or two clients that that initially said, this is what we want things to look like. And then we just built. We built as fast as we could. But there was a transition point. And it probably was when we had raised some capital. We got a new board member in. A really robust experience at IBM. And I, and I kind of challenged this question to him. And he had some great advice. He said, look, first of all, nobody's going to tell you that your baby is ugly. They just won't. I mean, data, they may say it every once in a while. But if you go and take a feature to them or they ask you for a feature, they're not probably going to tell you that 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 is is not their needs they're just going to be quiet and i said okay well, what's the inverse he said when they tell you that they want a feature or you elicit some interest there 
they could tell you, they could send it to an email, but unless you get them actually participating in a whiteboard discussion about how they would actually architect it, that's when you know you have um, a real sponsor on your hands. And so, you know, one that I can think of that's releasing in a couple of weeks was um, it was a it was a new feature that followed generally the same workflow as some of our other features, but it was directly correlated to uh, a pain point that the client had. So I took him to lunch. This was back maybe in Q1. I said, hey, what's what, what are the challenges that you need in six months, in nine months? So I was eliciting some curiosity from him. And he and in the back of my mind, while he's talking, I'm like, can we build that? Can we build that? What would that be? And then once he said it would be nice if your if your tool did that, um, I, I just asked him. I said, "Look, I can speed this up a lot, but I really need your help. Would you be able to participate in a one hour session?" And he was at the office uh, the next week. So I don't think every customer wants to do that, but I think that if you elicit some curiosity with that client or that prospect, even, hey, what, what are you really trying to accomplish? I think you bring him in as part of the the solution. And we've been lucky that folks have been able to do that. The other thing is I would say a product team has to be willing to listen. And that's something that our product officer and our product team has always done a really great job of. They're very humble. They, they're smart. They think they get the picture. But many times, I think the most valuable folks on the team are ones that have a, a bona fide belief system about what's what they want to be true. And then they're okay with saying, I thought about it like this. You're looking at it a different way. They, they kind of ponder and then they're like, that probably is a better way. So I think it's a balance of internal dynamics to your team and then actively asking for it from your from, from the ecosystem, right? Yeah, absolutely. You use the word sponsor. And I'm, I'm curious, is that, you know, sort of involved charging them to, you know, help implement it? So like essentially financing as well. It's a really great question, and I'd, I'd say it varies. So, you know, we're reaching a maturity at the company now where we've got so many different features that are being requested. We've, we've actually gone back and said, this is on a roadmap, but it's really not a roadmap item for 12 months. How important is it to your business model, and are you willing to put some funds towards that? You'd be surprised, especially the bigger companies, if, if there's a maybe 20 to 40% uptick in price, that enables them to get a 2023 feature in 2021, you'd be amazed at how they um, they view that uh, as, as, yeah, we'd, we'd love to. The other piece is um, you really have to balance it because the biggest question, I, I'm not the technical co-founder. Um, I've got a really, really great technical team. I'm, I'm kind of the, the, on the risk management side, I have a very good understanding of, of how the life cycle of risk uh, occurs. And so that's kind of a balance between me and the other side of the company. And one of the things I always tell them, as I said, if you're going to build a feature set for a prospect or a client, you've got to make sure that it aligns with what everybody else wants. Because the worst case scenario for us is that we're building, what do they call them? Snowflakes or butterflies. Luckily, we haven't had that happen too much, you know, but that's a challenge that only the leadership team can make, right? If you want to close that big client that's going to give you a level of traction that everybody else looks at, I think the, it's a very healthy perspective to say yes to everything, right? As long as you're getting compensated. On the flip side, I've seen customers that didn't have the influence and didn't have the the, the kind of the, didn't give you the, the results that you wanted as much, or they didn't really have their P&L really established or the people that were asking for it cycle out after a year. So I think it's a very, it's healthy to have a very complex understanding of what 
the longevity is of that deal. And that should be, to me, a factor. Right. And you, I mean, you really, really don't want to fork your product and have a custom code base for, it doesn't matter how big that client is, or, I mean, that, that is the classic sort of trap there. Uh, and this is why you see people architect into a mature product, like a, a plugin or an add-on infrastructure or, you know, with an open ABI and things like that. It's like, yeah, we can build a piece that plugs in relative to that, build a vendor marketplace, build a partner marketplace. Uh, but that, that in itself is a, you know, a year long or more, endeavor that, that takes your product team, you know, sort of off the mark. So I think people maybe sometimes jump a little too quick into that to, you know, re-architect the solution on that side. Well, I think there's a, so the way we, one of the things that we did, which may not be applicable for every, people say, okay, here are my sectors. As you branch out and you look at where you're going to grow, right? Well, here's my addressable market. Okay. Well, let's break that up into sectors. Which ones can we really go after? Let's look at geography. Let's look at company size. We actually looked at the maturity of the company's cyber profile as another layer of, of, uh, of context on, on whether they'd be a good fit. And I will tell you, the ones at the very far spectrum on the right of maturity, we have, we have not worked a lot with, um, not because we don't want to, but because their needs are a 10% of the market need. And they want the solution to connect to everything and they want a lot of custom software. And it'll be interesting to see kind of how we evolve over time where we're, I think, lucky and we and we found a really nice growth spot is that many times the partners that we, a partner could be a consulting company, it could be an OEM, it could be a, uh, it could be an industrial consultant, it could be an MSSP. Well, many of these folks have a service arm built into their company. And so they use this, they resell and refer the product, but they also use it internally to drive efficiencies. So our channel is actually our clients. And that has helped us out a lot because what we've been able to do is say, that's really not a feature that we see building, but these guys right here do that all the time and they offer a service to do it. And so that combo has really been kind of a, a catch-all for features that we don't think meet the mark for everybody. Um, and, and it's a healthy relationship because it drives value to the other company. And you then you would have discovered the you talked about discovering the consultant MSP, you know, sort of side of your market later. And so like all that would have developed around the idea that uh, I mean, it sounds like the ecosystem kind of, you know, just fell together in a really nice way. Yeah. So timing, you know, I, I don't know if I uh, if if people ask, you know, what are the top couple things I've been asked, you know, to, to drive success? I can't. In a SaaS market, especially when it's complex as ours, timing is so important. What we saw was a considerable amount of capital, a um, couple billion, going into um, what I consider blocking and tackling solutions for three to five years, a lot of Series A through Ds. And we watched the market kind of gravitate towards these solutions that showed them a lot of data, showed them their vulnerabilities, scared the hell out of them to be truthful. And now they're starting to peel back and say, okay, those are great solutions, but I have a lot of other gaps that are pretty rudimentary. One of the things that there will never be a plaque in, the, in our office, but we sense that and we actually did not raise capital until later in our life cycle, simply because we didn't think that the market was ready for that particular solution. And I think that our evolution to get to the consultant market actually followed the same kind of trajectory. 
we said, no, we're going to close a couple of these big asset owners, these operators, and then we'll get to the next. So did we plan that out as part of a multi-year business plan? Was that in the first pitch deck? No, it wasn't. It was just kind of this intuition that we had. And I'm happy to stumble upon stuff like that. You know, I really am. It'll be interesting to see how the market continues to evolve. We saw that a lot of the biggest companies in the world, when they had a solution need during really post-COVID right now, they're gravitating towards project-based consultants. They just are. Maybe that's because of a skills gap. Maybe that's because they want to keep the PL really, really tight and they don't want to make any long-term commitments. But it's working right now. We'll see how it goes in the next 24 months. I'm hopeful that the consultant groups are going to start getting in our space, in cyber. They're going to continue to be a, a, a center of mass. And it comes down to the liability and the third party view is that as they bring on a qualified third party group, it actually in some ways doesn't. But I think from a perception perspective, it absolves some of the responsibility that that's a separate group. They did it. And that's healthy in some ways. It works for it works right now for the market. We'll see how it evolves. You know, I mean, most of us in the service sector in that way would kind of go, hey, don't you want one throat to choke? You know, sort of, you know, like we'll take responsibility for that. We are the experts in that. We have the appropriate risk mitigation techniques. I mean, it makes it makes business sense. And particularly if you're a, a big organization looking that you simply can't move that fast, you know, and, and it, it needs to be separate. I tend to agree. And one of the things that I can also attest to is the ecosystem of tech in Houston has a very big supporting element to it. And it's all the companies that work here that are okay with working with startups. That has been something that I never imagined would be as powerful as it is. And they're they're wanting to find external solutions because they know how long it takes to build a solution internally. I was talking to one of the biggest companies in the energy sector just the other day. They've been trying to build a, our solution for five years and it still is not off the ground. And uh, I cried a small tear and then I gave them a pitch deck and, and, and we're going to move to a demo next week. And I'm excited about it because that's what we that's that's what we want to serve to be is is a faster, more diligent, more efficient and 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 take the responsibilities of it too. So I think that as we move like kind of that gig economy, we're seeing that between in the B2B space as well. I think we're just living it, right? I can't articulate it as well as maybe some of your other guests can, but it's making sense. And, 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 I, and I think that having more customers that might be a smaller, you know, smaller ACV or a smaller employee count and empowering all of them to do better is probably going to be better than just having a, a huge ACB with fewer numbers. I just, I just see that is the direction this economy is going. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So ACV being average contract value for anybody who's not, you know, uh, in that zone. And that's a big metric for all of us in tech services, services, SaaS, things like that. You know, how big is that ticket size uh, when you sign them on and I've talked about a risk management perspective of, of a startup, particularly in a bootstrap scenario, uh, you really don't want your revenue mix to be highly slanted to, you know, one giant player uh, that can, you know, cut you off at any point because you're, you're living on operating cash flow. Yeah. And it's interesting because we see the market. I don't know if you have had any guests talk about this, but one thing I may throw into the mix here is this pay as you go model. I've seen it in a lot of other industries, but I'm, I'm actually hearing a lot of folks say, Hey, look, 
Um, we like to be super flexible and, and, and we don't even want to sign up for annual contracts. We just want to pay as you go model. And as, and it's a pretty healthy balance there because as long as the client is willing to kind of open, open the box up and say, these are the deals we're working on. This is how we, this is how we go to market. This is how we're working. This is what the needs are over the next 12 months. That's valuable information to us. Right. But as the actual solution provider, it puts us on our toes to keep delivering that consistent value. And, and I, I don't know, have you heard a lot of pay-as-you-go models replacing SaaS for companies and having them go that direction? I can't say that too many folks have talked about that. And I, I don't, I wonder if the obsession with ARR in terms of raising venture uh, artificially skews that conversation because you then are forced to think about these, you know, sort of large annual, multi-annual types of contracts. But I mean, you're really talking pay as you go is MRR and you have to then risk weight, uh, the ability of that uh, to, to keep the churn down and the stickiness and, you know, sort of the power of that relationship. So it, I agree with your assessment that it feels like a more healthy balance for things. And I can tell you on the sales side that, Nobody wants to sign up for, you know, multi-year contracts of anything. It's, you know, just I want to prove it out. I want to make sure it's good. And it also forces you as the provider in, in any context to make sure your onboarding isn't a huge uh, pain in the ass and, you know, that it goes fast and that you show value early. There's nothing as bad to me as, as signing up a bad client and bad, you know, that's for anybody's perception, but I'd much rather have 10 folks that are excited about having a mutually risk oriented and a mutually value oriented discussion in a pay as you go model than to have one or two big ARR deals that are going to wag the, the tail of the dog. And, and I've seen that happen. I've also seen the inverse. I've seen folks sign up so many ARR just to get the ARR numbers, just to get their, their conversion right, just to saturate what, what was perceived as we own this market and then they had dropped their price so low to get that ARR, they're having trouble bumping it up to the next level. And that, I mean, that would be really challenging at the Series B or Series C. It's like, guys, I don't know how we're going to take our product to the next level. So I think it's got its challenges. I, I mean, ARR is here to stay. I, I think it's a really good metric. Who doesn't like recurring revenue, right? I just think that the market's smarter than it was five to 10 years ago. And, and I think that sh being shelfware uh, versus a pay-as-you-go model, it's interesting to see how it's going to all play out. But I mean, it lends itself so much more to a healthy business side. I don't think that it serves anybody to have to think about locking folks in to a point solution or, you know, any type of, I mean, it makes sense maybe if you're, I don't know, an ERP solution or something that is like just massive. But on a point solution model, you want to rise to the top and it's impossible for your you know, MSP or your consultant or anybody like that to bear the brunt of, of buying a, you know, some kind of license to your, your thing if you're locking them in to a cash flow model that doesn't suit the ebb and flow of their, of their world. So. Yeah, I think, I think that... Um... You know, there's different schools of thought on this. Some people say you need a three-tier SaaS model that needs to be scalable across the globe. And 
and, and let's go let's go for it. I think that in complex industries it becomes a complex conversation. What I think is interesting is is starting the relationship off with some clients in a pay as you go model instead of doing some really robust long proof of concept. You know, get them to the table in a pay as you go model. But once the numbers reach a certain level, they know how to implement it. They know how to use it. They've now implemented across a team. Then you switch over to the user licenses and that drives savings to them. That was actually pitched to me by one of the biggest consulting companies uh, internationally. We're working with them and said, hey, are you, got, are you guys okay with doing this for this project, this project, this project, this project? We total about 20. We use this many people and then we'll convert over into a multi-year contract. Only when we know exactly what this cost model is going to be, because, you know, that's what we invite you to think about. I was like, yeah. Why? Because of the reciprocity. You know, I was taught that very early on is that if the customer is not driving some reciprocity to the relationship in the prospect sense, they're probably going to do it as a customer. So, and it's just interesting the transition from pay as you go to SaaS in the life cycle of the, the customer journey. It seems reasonable. You know, it's a, uh... It is a good answer to that proof of concept, try before you buy, you know, sort of all these things. And it, I think it speaks well to anybody that is able and willing to do that believes in the value of what they're bringing to the table, because you know that the thing is good enough to retain that customer. Therefore, I don't need to, to force them into, you know, some kind of bizarre contract. Well, you always hear these nightmares about churn and what I see in cyclical industries is sometimes your folks change roles and it's, it's, it's challenging for customer experience managers to deal with that because you want to saturate the whole company, but it's sometimes hard to take this highly specific, highly, you know, knowledge oriented job or role and then try to expand outside of that. Well, I think a bunch of your people that probably buy on the inside, you know, ultimately, uh, get the bug and go, I'm going to go be a consultant instead. And now they had the experience of using your thing, you know, on the ground and then become implementers. There are some, there are some customers that we have that this may be the second or third time they've used our product. And it, and it goes to show the value of everything, but the software, you know, the team, the training, the support you offered to them, the times when they were like, Hey, look, I need you to, I need you to come in at this price. Cause this is just what I can do. And it's, I'm a, I'm a very big believer in the human side of software, believe it or not. You know, we're in the business of selling software in an, in, in an ARR capacity, but we're really in the business of making, you know, internal and external consultants successful and not pull their hair out. And when you focus on, when you focus on that end state for your day and your feature sets, I think those folks, they get it and, and, and they really do see through it. So that loyalty is, is to me, very important. Well, I, I love this track that we, we took. Maybe distill that down as our final thought into sort of, okay, I'm, I understand I'm a, a sort of a subject matter expert like yourself in an industry. I understand that I want to launch a tool. I have some ideas about big clients. I need to develop maybe a, a channel, you know, so like what, what are the key lessons there? If we take ourselves just like abstract a layer, I am the new founder founding team. We're sort of around the kitchen table still, you know, what, what can we say about these lessons that we just sort of delved into that would help that person, you know, at the beginning? So, so how to really start? Well, you, well, yeah, yeah right. You started and learned these things and it, it worked out in your favor. So what lessons could you say, if you knew back then 
what would you start with at the time? So one of them, one of them I really like, you already mentioned, you came from the space, you know it, you understand it. I think that's key. When I look for um, angel opportunities or I look for companies that I think are kind of on the way up, I, I, I try to find two things when it comes to, to, the, to, the, to the first look. Have, a, have experience, have enough experience in a given industry, but also have a compelling understanding of why it needs to evolve. I like to break things. I, I like to something to evolve. In my case, I used Excel for years and I said, there's got to be a better way. I think that's a similar story a lot of people could say. The second thing that I would, I would do is in the early days, raise as little capital as possible to, to drive validation of, of that initial product. And maybe that is one big client. You have some relationships there. They're going to put you on the map. They're going to tell you what features they want. Maybe you can get a paid proof of concept. Then you can take that to an angel investor. Um, too many times I see people try to raise on the idea. And if you have multiple exits as a founder, yeah, you can probably go get 15, 10, 15, 20 million, go in stealth for a year, and you can make that happen because of your background. But if you don't have those exits, that's not going to happen. In my particular case, as a first-time tech founder, we bootstrapped and we went and talked to every single client that we or prospect that we thought could use our product. We had an Excel file um, that had almost 30 or 40 tabs on it. And every tab was... I think we talked to McDonald's, we talked to ExxonMobil, we talked to EY, we talked to everybody that we knew in the industry. We asked them all 20 questions and that built our first feature set. We overlaid feature sets on what we thought was missing within the industry by canvassing every single company that had raised capital for the last 24 months. Some people, some people call that market research. I think market research is Tam Sam Som. And, and you know, that's a good part. The real market research is, you know, what is the core missing link and does that align with your belief system about the industry? And what I would say is timing doesn't always work out for that. The other thing is, um, what would I, what else would I do? I would build the most absolutely basic proof of or minimum viable product, your MVP. For us, believe it or not, our MVP was an Excel-based driven assessment. I took it to market. I sold one. I sold another. I sold another as an actual assessment itself. And we had a decision. We could build a tech-enabled service company or we could build a SaaS. And, and we went the latter route. And I'm glad we did. There are too few people that I talk to that are unwilling to just go and try and sell something because the vision that they have is that it's supposed to look like this. Well, I, I envision an app that connects X to Y. And then I tell people, I'm like, go broker that, connect the X and the Y, charge 5K. And when you do that 15 times, I guarantee you, whatever you're getting tired of doing over and over, that's what you digitize. <laughs> right? That's like, a perfect actually, one. Yep. Actually be your own customer first. Um, so I would say, and then the final thing is, and I think it's all intertwined, is you really have to drive revenue. That's my personal belief. Other people may say, let's build for three years and let's go to market. I, I, don't, I don't have any experience doing that. So I can't tell you that that's one way to, that you could be successful. I'd much rather start generating revenue because the second that you generate revenue, you have, a, you have a commitment to somebody. They have a commitment to you. And that reciprocating effect of value trade forces you to really think about your next moves really, really effectively. You know, for me, every company I start from now until ever, forever, I'll try to put a cap on how much we put into the company at first. Okay, we're going to 
generate X amount of revenue, however we can. And we're going to be okay if our product at the MVP stage is different than what we think about it at a business planning stage. And you have to have that flexibility ledge. Otherwise, I think you can get really, you can get really stuck. I, I hope that maybe those items or points resonate with somebody. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're really talking about a lot of stuff that is lean startup. And I have this conversation all the time about everybody that has, you know, the sort of the lean startup on their bookshelf, but never read it or, or doesn't follow the actual thing. I mean, the, you know, the, the customer discovery stuff is huge. I think it is. And, think, uh, and you did that. Yeah. So. And I, and I, yeah. I, I think customer discovery probably, probably pulls that. And here's the deal. It goes back to your original point in your question, which is you're from the industry. You have an idea. The hope is, is that you know all these folks to go talk to and take something back to them. If you don't have that, but you have a really solid idea, my advice would be to go find probably a disgruntled, very experienced person that wants out of their role and, and sign them up as a co-founder and, and, and give, them an, give them an out. That could be really fun. That would be fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ted, man, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out. Anybody wants to talk to you or, or the company? Uh, how do they um, how do they get in touch? Ted at securitygate.io, 713-344-6351, percent available. I love early stage. I love startups. I love uh, love the people side of it. If you've got an idea out there and I can point you in the right direction, please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, I appreciate the show. I hope this adds value to your to your uh, to your fan base, and and I'll be a fan from now on. <laughs> Absolutely, thanks for hanging out. Appreciate the insights. Yeah, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B two B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.